Welcome to the Northeastern Next podcast, your channel for the latest alumni stories in Boston and beyond. In this show, we'll catch up with Northeastern alumni who are out there achieving what's next. There are five times as many books about trucks than there are about any children of color. Silaja Joshi started Mango and Marigold Press to focus on the South Asian experience and help close the diversity gap in children's literature. Hi, Silaja. Welcome to the Northeastern Next podcast. You caught my eye on one of your posts on LinkedIn recently that your team was launching a 1001 Diverse Books initiative to raise money to donate books to nonprofits working in the literature space. And so when I read this, I realized I didn't actually know that much about children's literature. So I'm excited to talk to you today and share your story. So let's start with your company. You are CEO and founder of Mango and Marigold Press. Tell me about this idea, how it came about, and what inspired you to start the company. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on the podcast. I'm, I'm super excited to be here. So Mango and Marigold Press started about five years ago, and it started as a company called Barth Babies. And it really launched out of my own selfish need. About six years ago, maybe six and a half now, I was pregnant with my first child, my daughter, and I was having a library-themed baby shower, as you do in the age of Pinterest, obviously. <laughs> and I was looking for books to put on my registry. And I had some classics on there. And then I have a background in sociology and anthropology, specifically in the South Asian diaspora. And so I knew it was really, really important for my child to also be able to hear the stories of their culture, history, and heritage. And when I went on Amazon to look for stuff, I couldn't find it. When I went to the bookstores to look for stuff, I couldn't find it. And I realized there was stuff out there, but the stuff that was out there was developmentally inappropriate, culturally inaccurate, culturally insensitive. And I couldn't believe in that day and age, a country that has over 1 billion people somehow didn't have representation in the children's book market. Like it just seemed natural. Like, why wouldn't you have that? And so this is right before the We Need Diverse Books movement. And it was sort of the culmination with that, with actually giving birth to my daughter, that I realized that something had to be done. And so at that time, I was actually in my PhD program at Northeastern. And I was sort of poking around at resources, in, like within the Northeastern, you know, ecosystem. And I saw that idea, the venture incubator was an option. So I reached out. I saw that they had a prototype fund where really you filled out a really simple application. I remember it being like five questions in one page. It felt very, very simple to me. And they gave you $1,000 to try out your idea because they really recognized that for a lot of people, $1,000 was a significant amount of money. And it was the difference between thinking about your idea and starting your idea. And that, as I say, was transformational. It gave me the money I needed to hire my illustrator which gave me the cover art and some of the interior illustrations for our first book, Hanuman and the Orange Sun. That allowed me to launch a, you know, sort of bootstrapped Kickstarter campaign. And in five days, we raised the funds to do our, to raise enough money for our first print round of the book. 
it was phenomenal. And so that's how it started. It started with my own really selfish need for my daughter to be able to see herself on the cover of a book. And from there, it's grown into this movement to become a deep part of the conversation of bridging the both the diversity gap as well as the accessibility gap in children's literature. I love that. So I know obviously you're coming from a parent perspective. And when I saw, you know, your posts popping up on my LinkedIn and realizing I don't know about this, tell me a little bit more about what were you seeing in the literature space? Obviously, there wasn't representation of children of color in an authentic way. But what does the market look like, really? Yeah, I think so. We started five years ago. And at that time, there were five times as many books about dogs and trucks than there were about all children of color. That stat is alarming. And frankly, it hasn't changed. Mm -hmm. What I have seen is while there is a deep movement in publishing to change that, because the publishing industry is old, it's really dominated by five publishing houses. And the people who have the power and the money are still not diverse it's really, really challenging to shift those statistics drastically. And I think that's why independent presses such as ourselves are so vital to the conversation, so vital to ensuring that all children, children of color and children who might not be of color, have access to diverse literature. Because these books aren't Mm -hmm. just for children of color. They're for all families. I think that's really important to note, too, because you want – children to see themselves in the books, but it's also awareness and representation for everybody to see different faces and different characters. So you're not in your own bubble regardless. Exactly. Exactly. It's it's all about windows, mirrors, and doors. Like Dr. Rudine Bishop-Smith has a really great metaphor for it. You know, books are mirrors, windows, and sliding doors. And it's really important that all children have access to them. I frequently will get in like pitches and conversations with um, potential investors. They'll be like, well, how big really is the Indian parenting community here in the United States? And I'm like, it doesn't matter. Like I can give you that number, but what actually matters is the number of parents here in Mm -hmm. the United States, because those are the people who I'm interested in reaching. You know, families of color have read stories that feature only white protagonists, Mm -hmm for generations and we've done fine, <laughs> you know, like we, we've been able to read those books mm-hmm. and, and I, I, I always throw it back. I'm like, I don't understand. Like nobody asked me like how I could read Harry Potter because he was a white boy. Mm-hmm. Nobody asked me that. So how can you ask me that question about this Brown protagonist? Mm-hmm. And that usually gets people to be quiet. <laughs> that's, I mean, that's a great perspective. <laughs> when, I, when I ask it in a really provocative, when you put it in that perspective, people are like, yeah, I guess, you're not wrong. Mm-hmm. It's true. And I think a lot of these times, maybe it's, it comes from a place of ignorance, but not always on purpose, right? So it's like, it's good. We were, yeah. we were talking about this right before we started recording. And I asked you how to pronounce your name. And I think it's finding the ways to have these conversations, cultural conversations, so that people understand. And if they might ask a question like that, that is very, you know, ignorant and understanding why cultural stories matter. It's just responding to them in the right way. And I think that's a big part of this as an awareness campaign and a business. Exactly. Exactly. Absolutely. So let's dive in a little bit to your Northeastern experience. You talked a little bit about the Venture Accelerator 
And can you walk me through a little bit about your educational journey? Because I know you probably studied a few different things that maybe impacted where your business is today. Yeah. So um, I graduated in 2006 and I graduated with a dual degree in international business, marketing and finance. I actually spent a year and a half, almost two years abroad at one of our partner schools in Germany. So I took all my classes in German, learned German, did my co-op in German. And I think um, I've always been someone who loves to travel, loves the world, loves cultures. And it was actually one of the last classes I took my senior year with, I feel like his first name was Harry. I forget the professor's last name, but it was like a cultural anthropology class um, and how it integrated with business. And I realized that's what I wanted to do. And that sort of set me on a path to was do it, Was a it Harry Lane, actually? Study. Was it? Perfect? Yes. I, there we go. Yes. I actually took that yes. course. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> great course. Mm-hmm. And it was foundational to me because I realized that I didn't want to sell stuff to people just to sell stuff. I wanted to sell stuff that intuitively met their needs. And mm-hmm. it sort of set me on this path to do my degrees in anthropology, sociology. And for a little while, I thought I'd be an academic. Hence, I, I was in a PhD program mm-hmm. very briefly. But really, all of those steps set me up to have a strong foundation, not only in business and business acumen, but to always think of Northeastern as a resource. It sounds really weird. I think when I graduated from Northeastern, I didn't really think much about being an alumna. And now I turn to Northeastern every time I when I have a need. Mm-hmm. I'm like, like we recently rebranded mm-hmm. and I went to Idea. I was like, oh, I'm thinking about a rebrand. What kind of resources are there? And they're like, oh, you should apply to Scout mm-hmm. to see if they can help you with this. And you should also apply to our legal team and ask them these questions. And so now it's a constant part of my conversation. <laughs> like it's mm-hmm. a constant part of my identity. And that was not something I was thinking of when I was an undergrad. I think a lot of students just, you know, they're there four or five years and then you graduate and then it's still your alma mater, but it's in the past. And Northeastern has never been like that. So I love when I hear these stories or people as an alum, whether it's through alumni relations, through, you know, these business resources on campus, there are so many opportunities that, you know, you're never, your time at Northeastern is forever. <laughs> and I think it's it's really cool that yeah. those exist. Yeah, abs- yeah, absolutely. So... You also work full time in another job. <laughs> so tell me a little bit about how you balance your career and how maybe your business started with it on the side. And then how are you able to kind of do both things? Yeah. So my while I was incubating my company and starting in the first years, I had two real, I had a young child and was pregnant with my second. And was doing consulting work as a design, as a design thinker, consumer anthropologist, you know, very much thanks to Harry Lane's course. And I sort of at that moment in my life realized that having two young kids and a startup with not the same economic capital as most entrepreneurs, I didn't have that generational wealth as the daughter of immigrants. I just realized I needed to find a job. And so I found a great local design agency. I, they saw me as talented and I joined it and later it was acquired by Accenture, which is a multinational corporation, much bigger. And I have been really, really lucky to be able to find a way to balance both. Mm -hmm. So I am very upfront and honest. Like my colleagues all know what I do and celebrate my victories 
both within the organization and outside of it, which is really exciting. They also all frequently buy and support books, including the 1001 Diverse Books campaign. Mm -hmm. This was pretty amazing. And then I am, you know, when sometimes my PTO goes to me traveling over to conferences for my publishing house, and that's just a negotiation I make. Last year, I sort of realized that in order for us to succeed, I needed to start to not try to do everything myself. I think as an entrepreneur, we frequently fall into this like, well, let me just figure out how to do Facebook ads. Like, I'll just take this quick course. I'll just do this. And that's stupid. <laughs> it was just the silliest waste of my time. And so I started to outsource and it's probably, it's still, we're very much bootstrapped. There is no funding for us. There is no angel investment. People don't, that's not where the money is. People aren't interested in it, but I'm interested in making a difference in this world. And so whatever little money we have, I realized that in order to grow our business, I had to start investing in people who could help support us just at the very baseline. So we have two people who sort of support us now at a very much a part-time level, and that has been transformational mm -hmm. for us. And that also then allows me to spend like my time doing the job that people built, mm -hmm. as well as doing some of the higher level thinking and visionary stuff that a CEO should be doing. Mm -hmm. Recognizing that you need to build a team, I think, is such an important step at any level Absolutely. of the business, knowing that you can't do everything and you people hire teams to trust them and lean on expertise in different and it does free up your time of where you're looking to go. Exactly. Like I should not be doing accounting. Nobody should have <laughs> I should not. I shouldn't. It's okay. I'm really good at other things. Mm -hmm. I should not be doing my accounting. Nope. Mm -hmm. Nope. I love, uh, I've always been a big fan of, you know, strengths-based leadership and strengths finder and all those things. And it's true in any, whether you're an entrepreneur or any type of career, that let's stop focusing on what we're not good at and focus on what we are. And then when you build a Definitely. team, everyone's going to have different strengths. And that's what makes it, you know, it's cheesy, exactly. but makes it stronger. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so we've kind of hinted at this a few different times about this 1001 diverse campaign, book campaign. Can you break it down a little bit more and what your goals are for this project? Yeah. So I really quickly in the inception of um, our company realized that where these books were needed the most were in some of the communities that would not get access to them, typically economic constraints. So it was teachers, it was families, it was libraries who simply didn't have the ability to get these books, but needed them. And I am really, really lucky in that I grew up in a home where if I wanted a book, like it appeared, whether it was from the library, or from my like from a budget, like my parents always made room for that because they could. And not every family has that. But every child in my mind has a fundamental right to books to literature, and especially literature that reflects themselves. And so that's how we started the 1001 Diverse Books campaign. That was my attempt at being like, you know what? I just want to give away books, but that doesn't make business sense. Mm -hmm. So if I can get, I was like, what is the bare minimum I could charge to cover our costs to get and to get books out there? What could it be? And it, it was $10. And $10, you know, I, I talked to people and $10 felt like, an easy amount for some people, like for many people, like, yeah, I will sponsor a copy for $10. And it's, the response has been phenomenal because I was like, people are like, yeah, absolutely. So now what's really cool about the campaign too, is in addition to 
I'm sort of partnering with different nonprofits that work in the literacy space. We're also just reaching out to teachers and communities and being like, if you self-identify as a space in need, send me your, send me your mailing address because I've got a book for you. Mm-hmm. Maybe two books, maybe five mm-hmm. books, you know? And that has been our way of bridging the accessibility gap and helping to improve, to ensure that in communities of color, in communities that are economically disadvantaged, they are getting access to new, high quality, diverse books. These aren't the production like mishaps. These aren't the ones that have errors on the pages. These are brand new, the same ones that people are buying for because those children, children across the country, communities across the country deserve that. So let's talk a little bit more about the books. So yeah, obviously you've talked about the funding and marketing and all of this that goes into the business, but you also needed authors and illustrators and talk me through how you were able to build that part and, and the, the titles that you have and maybe talk me through one of one of your favorite books that you have. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And I think it's really interesting. Literally, as soon as we launched the company, I started to receive manuscripts and mm. I was kind of blown away because I thought I was going to have to find authors and stuff. And it turns out pretty much everyone knows someone who wants to write a children's book. Mm-hmm. People really um, love the idea of being a children's book author, but it's so, sort of really aspirational for many, many people. And so we're really lucky in that I read 10 to 20 scripts um, a month mm-hmm. from authors, aspiring authors, veteran authors who are interested in coming to our into our publishing house. We are very selective in how we choose authors. We often prioritize own voice authors, meaning individuals who are of a South Asian background, because that's vital to our mission to help bridge the diversity gap. But I always say that our stories look to be anything from the everyday to the extraordinary, from the, you know, from the magnificent to the mundane. It can be anything like I would love a story about a lovely little brown girl who's just excited to get a puppy for the first time. <laughs> you know, it doesn't mm-hmm. have to, every story doesn't have to be a teaching to- story. Every story doesn't have to be a teaching tale. And I think that's what's really exciting about this. And so we typically get our authors first and we acquire their manuscripts and then reach out and find illustrators. And we have been started to get really lucky about the illustrators that we find too. And in that way, we work really as a traditional publishing house, a fairly similar process across the board. And we recently shifted and expanded the, not only the types of stories we tell, expanding into young adult, middle grade, as well as anthologies, but we also expanded the countries and communities we work to represent really South Asian diaspora as a whole, which is really exciting. That's really cool. So do you have a favorite story? I love that you came back to that question because I was trying to avoid it. So (laughs) asking me if I have a favorite is kind of like asking me if I'm a favorite child. I don't each story um, because I'm pretty deeply involved in the process from finding the illustrator edit to planning the marketing campaigns. I will say that each book holds a special place in my heart. You know, Hanuman and the Orange Sun, it was our flagship book and it's still a favorite in my home. Pudmini is Powerful is a really, it's, it was one of our first board books, and it brings people to tears, that book, and that was unexpected and beautiful in so many ways. Books like Always, Anjali, and Super Sepia Saved the Day really represent not only stories that I needed to hear when I was that age, especially Always, Anjali, 
but they also represent a significant moment in our sort of moment as a publishing house where some really big names, some really wonderful people were coming to us and we were able to do that successfully. And then there are future books out there that like, I am just excited for this world to tell. So each story becomes a like deep part of my existence and and our authors and illustrators are like family to me. That's great. I'll definitely plug your your website in the show notes after so people can kind of look at through some of these titles and and see them for themselves. I'd love that. And this is the Northeastern Next podcast. So my favorite question to ask is what's next for you and what's next for Mango and Marigold? (laughs) Like, do you have growth strategies? What are you focusing on next? Yeah, I think a big growth strategy for us is looking to expand into the young adult middle grade market to help broaden our collection and the communities that we share and represent. It's pretty exciting because we just announced, I think, at the beginning of the week that we have acquired our first middle grade novel. Really, really exciting. And working on a couple of other exciting pieces, I am, I continue to trek along in this world where I think I've been told no to no too many times and I refuse to quit. So it's continuing to tell the stories that deserve to be told and taking up space on the bookshelf. Well, thank you so much for your time. I think it's very inspiring and I love talking to you about it. I think I had done my research and I just learned so much just in the, you know, few minutes. So (laughs) thank you. Thank you, Megan. Thanks for listening. You can learn more at mangoandmarigoldpress.com. If you enjoyed the episode, please rate and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. This is Megan Kirkbrisson from the Office of Alumni Relations. Stay safe, and I'll talk to you soon.